Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In the studio today is an expert on Africa's economy and development. You'll also hear David Wessel's regular economic update and a new segment that puts a spotlight on metropolitan areas and issues. As always, if you have any questions for a guest on this program, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get it answered on an upcoming show. My guest today is John Page. He's a senior fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program and a nearly 30-year veteran of the World Bank, where among many roles, he was chief economist of the Africa region. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much. Can you first talk about your trajectory into the field of African economics? I mean, how did you become a scholar in this field? Almost completely by accident. Uh, When I was an undergraduate at Stanford, I enrolled for a... uh, upper division Spanish language course that proved to be more of a challenge than I wanted to uh, face at the time. So I needed um, a five-unit course to plug into the same time slot. It turned out to be Economics 101. And I just happened to have the very good luck of having as the faculty advisor in my dormitory at Stanford a man who had begun his career in the Peace Corps in Africa and had gone on to get a PhD and become an academic economist working on development. As I thought about it, it seemed to me that if you were interested in social science, and particularly in economics, the question of why some countries are poorer than others and what to do about it was probably the greatest single challenge that one could begin to address. And of course, um, because I was influenced early and, and often by my friends at Stanford, um, Africa obviously seemed like the logical place to begin. Okay. I think it's so fascinating how we, we get to uh, get to where we are based on different choices and doors open in here and doors closed there. You never know. Well, let's talk about Africa now. Um, you and others have noted that although African countries have experienced high growth rates uh, in recent years, in recent decades even, um, this growth has paradoxically had a limited impact on poverty reduction. What's going on there? In a sentence, this growth has created too few good jobs. Let me be clear what I mean by good jobs. These are jobs that pay substantially more than the alternative earnings in agriculture uh, that give people some sense of stability in their employment and ideally also give them some chance to grow in terms of the skills that they can acquire. Much of Africa's growth has been driven by major improvements in economic policy since the middle of the 1990s and a commodity boom which we are now seeing begin to come to an end. Unfortunately, neither of these two drivers of growth have been employment intensive. And that's why many of us are concerned that without some employment intensive options, Africa's economies will face a growing jobs crisis. I read in some of your materials uh, that more than 80% of workers in sub-Saharan Africa are working poor, and that's double the global average of working poor. That's correct. And um, it's, again, something which um, is important to keep in mind because, at least in advanced economies, we tend to associate unemployment with poverty. And um, in the case of Africa, certainly, and in many other parts of the developing world, people are working very hard. But they're not earning very big incomes. They're working hard, but they're working poor. You also say that Africa needs an export push. Um, how would that help with, uh, with, with better jobs, better wages, better skills? The kinds of activities that you're looking for to create highly paid employment are 
generally types of economic activities that have high value added per worker and a large demand for labor. Of the traditional range of, of economic activities and certainly the economic history not only of East Asia, the most recent example, but also of, of Western Europe and the United States, is that industry, namely manufacturing industry, plays that role. One thing that's happening in the 21st century is that the boundaries between industry, some parts of agriculture, and some services activities are beginning to become somewhat more obscure. If you think about it, we now have agro-industrial value chains, even such simple-sounding things as cut flowers and horticulture, green beans, for example, that really, for the most part, are more like manufacturing activities than they are like traditional agriculture. Similarly, we have back office operations, we have remote services, we have tourism. Again, employment-intensive activities that generate high value added per worker. So the question is, how do you remove the constraint that's imposed by domestic demand for these kinds of activities? If the economy is closed and doesn't have access to the rest of the world, in a sense, growth is self-limiting. But in the case of exports, the potential is to really serve a vast world market. And in the case of Africa, because it's such a small share of the global market, less than 2% for these kinds of activities, it really represents an opportunity. Then the question becomes, how do you organize economic policy in such a way that when an entrepreneur is making an investment decision, they say, ah, you know, I'd rather put it in exports than put it in something else. And that's what we mean by an export push. The other reason why the work that we've done, and this work really reflects a four-year project that was joint between the African Development Bank, uh, the United Nations University, World Institute for Development Economics Research, WIDER, and the Brookings Institution, is that in low-income countries, firms actually become more productive through the process of exporting. So you get a double dip. You eliminate the demand constraint and you improve the overall productivity of the high productivity sector. What do we mean by an export push? It's getting all your ducks in a row. Here in Washington, I suppose we would call it a, a whole of government approach. It's not enough to tell the central bank governor, you have to maintain an, an effective exchange rate, which is competitive, without telling the minister of industry and trade that you have to make your free zones work, that you have to have trade policies that are consistent with neutrality of incentives between exports and import substitutes, um, that the foreign investment office has to work. It really requires leadership from the top. And one of the interesting, again, pieces of modern economic history is that in East Asia, every one of the so-called East Asian miracle economies, really beginning with Japan and running right through now today to Vietnam and Cambodia, has managed to mount one of these export push type strategies. What I think is really interesting is uh, the, the title of a book that you have coming out later in the, the year from the Brookings Institution Press is called Made in Africa. I mean, we see Made in China, obviously. We see now Made in uh, Vietnam. We see Made in Cambodia. We see Made in Ecuador, clothes and, and shoes and goods and things like that. But we really don't see Made in Africa too much. No, and that's why the subtitle is called Learning to Compete in Industry because – we really started this work to try to understand why there was so little industry in Africa, whether that was important or not. Because again, as you said at the beginning of the show, there's been a 
two-decade period of really quite reasonable economic growth across the continent. And then finally, of course, the most important thing, what to do about it. Um, I think we came a long way toward answering the why it's important question um, when we talked about jobs, poverty, and the need to create more employment. And there I would just simply add that um, with Africa's demographic profile, there is going to be an increasing share of young employment age people coming into the labor force in Africa over the next 50 years, which either represents an excellent opportunity, a demographic dividend like we saw in, in East Asia, or a demographic catastrophe. And that's going to be something that governments – and it is something that governments in Africa have very much on their mind today. Um, so the work in, in Made in Africa – which is, we hope, a readable summary of what we think we've learned, really focuses on this question of, in policy terms, what can you do? And to try to understand that, we began with two prior questions. The first one was, what makes firms, which at the end of the day are the really relevant actors on the production side of the economy, more productive? And what makes some countries more attractive to productive firms than others? As a policymaker, if you want to learn to compete, if you want to have made in Africa or made in Tanzania or made in Ghana on the label of your garments or of your machine tools, what you need to have is more highly productive firms capable of competing on the global economy. And you need to draw in firms who are making a choice, let's say, between moving out of China and moving to Cambodia or moving out of China and moving to Mozambique. Um, I heard a stunning statistic when I was in London last week. Between now and about 2030, the estimates are that as many as 85 million jobs at the bottom end of manufacturing, at the labor-intensive assembly-type manufacturing level, will migrate out of China. So the question is, where will they go? Right now, the great majority of them are going in the neighborhood. Vietnam, Cambodia, people are beginning to talk about Myanmar. But it was our contention that with some policy changes and with somewhat greater focus, a number of African countries can actually reach out and begin to attract these kinds of activities. So the quick answer to what makes firms more productive, we talked about the question of exports. There's obviously also the factor that we usually talk about here in Washington, competition. Competition is a, a force that drives firms to think about cutting slack, becoming more productive. But in addition to that, there are two other areas that are less well understood, I think, in terms of the analysis of industrial location. One is clustering or agglomeration. And we know that actually firms like to be near each other. And the reason why they like to be near each other is because that gives you a productivity boost. It actually makes you more productive as a firm to be near other people who are doing more or less the same thing that you're doing, especially in low-income countries. The other factor is one that wouldn't surprise anybody in a management school, but for some reason tends to take economists a bit by surprise. And that's management matters. But not just management in the sense of the senior executives. It's actually the knowledge, working practices, and understanding of the labor force right down from the top guy to the lowest paid person on the shop floor. You put these three things together and it's not then so difficult to understand the geography of industrial location in the 21st century. 
Why did we see an explosion of manufacturing and activity in Vietnam? Because a large number of firms made the decision to migrate from China into Vietnam more or less at the same time so they could capture the cluster economies that were available and brought with them these so-called firm capabilities, the knowledge and working practices that allowed them to become more competitive. What were they doing? They were manufacturing for exports. So in a sense, you have a troika, exports, agglomerations, and capabilities. And as a government, what you need to think about is how do I actually address these things in a coherent way rather than trying to do very well at one aspect but ignore the others? And what we've seen, at least in the case studies that we did for this research project, is that successful industrializers, and I would add to the list of the Asian story, for example, places like um, Mauritius in, in Africa, were pretty good at addressing these three drivers of industrial location, these three things that both make firms more competitive and countries more attractive to competitive firms in a coherent way more or less doing something on each at the same time over a sustained period of, of time. Well, let me ask you, uh, let me pose to you a stereotype. And I hate stereotypes, but I think uh, people might be asking, well, um, given the known issues to uh, industrialization, why hasn't it happened in Africa? Maybe it's because of, again, this is stereotypical, and I want you to knock it down, um, African nations are rife with conflict and corrupt governments and disease and so on. What are the, what, how do those factors play into it and what are the, uh, some of the true reasons that African nations, uh, some of them at least, are having trouble moving forward with industrialization? We thought a lot about this and, um, and discussed it a lot among the whole group of researchers. Um, and I might add here something that those of us who were, in a sense, the organizers of this work were very proud of, which is that the vast majority of this research was actually done by Africans themselves based in think tanks in Africa, working on African problems, or by, in the case of the studies of Vietnam and Cambodia, Vietnamese and Cambodians. So we had quite a lively debate, as you can well imagine, when we'd have product, project meetings about this. And we finally came to the conclusion that it was really two things. It was bad luck and bad policy. Let me start with bad luck. In the 1960s and 1970s, the post-independence governments in Africa all dedicated themselves to transforming their economies from mainly agrarian uh, and mainly resource producing to industrial economies. In those days, it was very much how people saw development. Um, but it also was a reaction to the colonial legacy, obviously, of, um, of each of these countries as it became independent. In the early stages of economic development across Africa, there was actually an industrialization boom. And the share of industry went from about 2% overall for the continent to more than 10% between let's say 1960 and um, 1975. They were doing pretty well. But they were using a model which unfortunately, again, was self-limiting. It's called import substitution. And as we discussed, when you're substituting for imports, you eventually run into a constraint, which is that your market is no larger than your national economy. And these were very small economies. As import substitution began to run out of steam, 
and economic growth began to tail off. Governments across the continent became, I guess today we can say this without much fear of contradiction, quite irresponsible in terms of their macroeconomic policies. The result being in combination with a series of terms of trade shock in the world economy, high inflation, balance of payments deficits, exchange rate instability, it was not an environment in which people wanted to invest in anything, much less in industry, which was a somewhat speculative kind of activity. The bank, the fund, the African bank came in. We had the structural adjustment period that began around 1980 and ended really around 1995 to 2000. During that period, which is almost a 20-year period, the global economy changed fundamentally. When Africa went into structural adjustment, the paradigm was still basically that low-wage, low-income economies were competing with the industrial north. By 1995, low-wage, low-income economies are competing with China. It's a very different world. So in one sense, the structural adjustment period made a major contribution to Africa's economies because it stabilized the macroeconomy. It fixed the worst problems with respect to using the price system to allocate resources. And it really created an atmosphere in which you had a platform for further growth. But you also came out of the structural adjustment period at perhaps the worst possible time in terms of thinking about manufacturing. And indeed, what we saw is that as Africa's economies opened up to international competition in the course of structural adjustment, it was the Chinese who dominated the market for imports. That's beginning to change. We see today much more evidence, as I said, this stunning statistic that the Chinese themselves because this was a, actually a representative of the Chinese government who made this comment, are thinking of offshoring 85 million jobs and shifting into higher value-added, higher technology kinds of activities means that there's a window of opportunity today that didn't exist in 2000, 2005. So the big question is, will the Africans be able to seize it? The other thing, since you asked about conflict and poor governance, is that there, there's a slightly better luck story in the sense that I would argue, and I know many of my friends who study Africa on the political side, I think would be prepared to argue as well, that in contrast with the 1980s and 1990s, the quality of economic governance and the quality of overall political governance in Africa has improved substantially, and that the level of conflict has subsided. So it was then, this is now, Bad luck is really a part of the story. And then let's come to part two, which is bad policy. And here I think to try to put this in a balanced way, our judgment is that two factors have steered Africa's policy choices in a direction that was not fully consistent with mounting an industrialization drive. The first one is this is always easy for researchers to say, ah, we've done new research and now we have new insights. But I think it actually is true that having a better understanding, not just from our own work, but from where the economics profession is today about what causes firms to be more productive and what drives the choice of location by, by firms, we have a better understanding of the components that are needed for a more effective industrialization drive, this kind of three-part strategy I was talking about. If you had been discussing 
industrialization, that was recently, really, is 10 years ago. Very, very few people would have made this kind of assertion, let's put it that way, but based on evidence. Um, and the few of them who would have would have been East Asians and they might have been dismissed as being reflective only of East Asia's unique experience. So I think the profession is kind of coming around a consensus view which is stronger and therefore more robust to use to give advice to to governments. Um, but I don't think you can hold African governments responsible for not having these insights when the profession itself was pretty far behind. But the second major force, and this is one where sitting here in Washington, some serious thought I think needs to happen, is that unlike any other part of the developing world, the donor community, the aid donors, so the multilateral development banks, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the bilateral development agencies, exercise a much larger influence over policy choices in Africa than they do over policy choices in any other developing country that I know. And the attitude of the development community towards industrial development has not been supportive until very, very, very recently. If you think about it, and you went back to my 30-odd years, almost 30-odd years in the World Bank, I was at one time the director for poverty reduction in the World Bank. I was enthusiastic as well, but the enthusiasm of the turn of the century, which is about the time that Africa gets this space to begin making some choices, was for poverty reduction. And what were we looking for in poverty reduction? We weren't looking for investments in infrastructure. We weren't looking for industrial policies. We were looking for ways to put more power for the poor to earn their livelihoods, which at least in the view of most aid agencies, and I would include my own view at the time in the World Bank, didn't really include an industrialization agenda. Interestingly enough, a number of thoughtful Africans kept trying to remind us that it isn't enough to transfer income to the poor, nor is it enough simply to work on agriculture and microenterprises. You have to have a high productivity sector to the economy. But we didn't really listen very carefully, with the result that people didn't really want to explore the options. Has that change been reflected in the, in the changeover from uh, – change in thinking been reflected in the changeover from – the UN's Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's very funny because, of course, um, a number of my friends of long standing have written extraordinarily critical pieces about the new Sustainable Development Goals, largely on the theme of they're unfocused, they can't be monitored, uh, they seem to be a grab bag of everything. There's 17 of them. Yes, there are 17 of them and there are 110 indicators or something like that. So it sounds, whoa, yeah, why? The reason why is very simple. When the Millennium Development Goals were written, the Africans weren't let into the room. The first they knew about them was when they were summoned to the General Assembly and told, well, these are the new UN Development Goals, you're going to vote for them, right? This time, not just Africans, but all developing country citizens, including through a very open process that our colleague Homi Karras here was in part responsible for, were invited in to comment, to say what's important to us. And not too surprisingly, because developing countries vary, even when in Africa, Africa is not a country. 
there were a much broader set of things that people articulated. From the point of view of industrial development, two of them are extraordinarily important, eight and nine. Eight is the one that says, hey, we need jobs. And the jobs have to be good jobs. And if we're going to keep score in development, we should keep score on the basis of jobs created as well as these other desirable objectives like health and poverty. And nine speaks to infrastructure, which is one of the foundational requirements for any kind of industrial development. So unlike my friends, I'm actually quite enthusiastic about the goals. I think they will be problematic in terms of evaluating progress, in terms of setting priorities. But I do think what they do is is open up the possibilities of a much broader sense of what development is about and give countries, even individual countries, the opportunity to say, well, all right, we've got 17. Numbers 1, 5, 8, 9, and 11 matter to us. That's what we're going to do. Well, let's take a quick break here, and we're going to hear our regular economic update from David Wessel. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. If you're like me, Bitcoin sounds like something between fad and fraud, a virtual digital currency that's mined by computers toiling away in the darkness somewhere where electricity is cheap, something for libertarians who don't believe in government or survivalists who stock their basements with canned goods. But the technology that undergirds Bitcoin, the innovation that makes it possible, may prove to be an enduring development that significantly changes the way money changes hands around the world. The key is something called the distributed ledger and an innovation known as the blockchain. And we recently convened experts to talk about how this might change the financial system. Now, any payment system needs trust. Today, when you pay with something with a credit card or with one of those apps like Apple Pay or Venmo, the funds ride along a variety of electronic paths. Think of them as rail lines of differing gauges. But they all end up being centrally cleared at some bank somewhere kept in a centralized ledger. Most of us, nearly all of us, trust the institutions that keep those ledgers, and that's why the financial system works. With a distributed ledger, there is no central authority. Instead, the transactions are recorded among all the participants in a shared or distributed ledger. There's no bank at the middle of things. The technical details are complicated, but essentially a network of computers uses cryptography to secure, update, and maintain the ledger, Most of these ledgers are built with what's called a blockchain, a database that chronologically arranges bundles of transactions. If you think of it this way, instead of having one bank in which we trust or a network of banks in which we trust, we trust each other. Now, this sounds somewhere between geeky and foolish, I know, but hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested on the hunch that this could be really big. There are startups who see this technology as a way to unseat the big banks and other institutions that dominate finance. And there are big banks who see it as a way to make their back offices much more efficient. It has the potential to substantially reduce the cost of financial transactions, to reduce errors and fraud, to make everything move much faster. So if you sell a share of stock, you don't have to wait three days for the money to go in your account. Lower transaction costs could be a really big deal, making it easier for people who live paycheck to paycheck to get their money instantly so they can avoid overdrafts and payday loans, making it easier for money to move across borders, whether it's a business or somebody sending money home to their relatives in Mexico. And it might make possible newspaper mobile phone apps that sell stories by the piece for just a fraction of a cent each. Uh, because the transaction costs will be so low. Now, there are big issues with this, as I've learned. There's tension between those who think that technology can prosper 
only if Bitcoin, the currency, is more widely used, and those who doubt that'll ever happen and see it as a way to make the existing system more efficient. There are all sorts of regulatory issues, as there always are with new technologies, more so in a highly regulated business like finance. And for good reason. We saw what happens when the financial system breaks down. There are worries that this technology, because it can be used anonymously, might be misused by terrorists or money launderers, although proponents say it could also be used to catch bad guys. This is early days yet. Bitcoin, distributed ledger, the blockchain, this is like the internet in the early 1990s before Netscape invented the browser and we knew what the internet could do for us. It could prove to be one of those innovations that seem promising but never delivered. But I think there's a decent chance it'll prove to be a lot more than a fad and a lot more than a fraud. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. And now back to the discussion with John Page. John, let's, uh, let's take it back. This is always kind of a navel-gazing kind of question, so I apologize, but I think it's interesting. What's at stake uh, in, uh, for Western and Northern nations in industrialization and in poverty reduction for African nations? This is a tough question to answer because there's an easy answer which I'm, I'm not fully comfortable with. And the easy answer is the one that both high-level aid officials and political leaders tend to pull out, in particular when they confront increasing skepticism on the part of their voters for, for aid and development assistance. And that is our security fundamentally depends on the prosperity of other countries. I do believe that that's true in the very long run. But I don't believe that a story, which in a sense is a security-based story, is all that much more attractive than the rationale that was offered in the 60s and 70s and to some extent is still offered in some countries like Japan, which is that our prosperity depends on the prosperity of other countries. And if we want to export, we need countries that are capable of importing and we need to have a wider range of richer countries in order to expand the global economy and provide new opportunities for Americans. I think that's true as well. But I think there's a third reason, which is that, and it may go back again to the origins of my interest in economic development, in a world in which the disparity in incomes between people living in the poorest countries and people living in the richest countries is actually greater than the disparity of income of people living within the borders of any country. So we're worried now about income distribution, worried about the distribution of wealth at the national level. If we look at it at the global level, it's even more extraordinary. There's also compelling argument that the richer countries have some obligation to think in terms of what they can do, not just in their self-interest, but also in the interests of the global economy and of global citizenry to help reduce these disparities. And there, I think the most important sacrifice perhaps, although I don't think it's a terribly large sacrifice, but it depends on, on the politics of the moment, is that one also has to think in terms of trade in addition to the traditional development assistance framework. One of the things that we've tried to do in this country is give Africa a toehold in the U.S. market for non-traditional exports, including manufactured goods through AGOA. 
And I'm very pleased to see that AGOA has been extended, that it's got a longer mandate. That's the, uh, it's the Africa Growth Opportunity Act? Yes. Um, the Europeans have a similar system of preferences. Uh, they call it the Economic Partnership Agreements. One very simple thing that Europe and the United States could do together is to make these two coherent so that a firm doesn't have to master one set of rules for exporting to Europe and another set of rules for exporting to America. Broader than that, last month I was at the WTO ministerial meeting in Nairobi. Uh, we didn't make very much progress there in terms of preferences for manufactured goods in the global economy for poor countries. But ultimately, the WTO ought to be the standard setter uh, with a clear definition of which countries are eligible and what kinds of preferences are, are possible. So combining more intelligent use of aid with trade is a way of addressing this bundle of issues, improving our prospects for greater global security, improving our prospects for greater global commerce, and doing the right thing. Do you hear anything in the, in the presidential election on the campaign trail that references Africa sort of from an economic and trade perspective? Not very much. Um, I have this secret hope. I have no idea how realistic it is that when he leaves office, President Obama may become more active in thinking about some of these kinds of issues and in and thinking a bit about uh, these questions of, of, of African development. I think at the moment, certainly at this stage in the election, uh, most of the candidates are much more interested in, in hammering home their talking points on, on U.S. domestic policy than they are on uh, – certainly on development policy. So um, perhaps later on when we get to the general election stage, there will be a more nuanced uh, discussion. But at the moment, one doesn't hear very much excitement uh, around the theme. Let's wrap up this conversation uh, by talking about what are some of the bright spots on the continent? What, what countries would you point to as uh, being su success stories? There are a number. And the thing that's I think a challenge is that as we go through this adjustment to – the changing world of, of oil prices and commodities, some of the traditional set of um, – my favorite term is, is leopards. I've heard people talk about lions. I've heard people talk about cheetahs. Um, they're all trying to tiptoe around the fact that because tigers are not indigenous to Africa, we can't talk about African tigers. But I think – the good news story for Africa is that there will be a number of countries that emerge over the next 15 to 20 years that are analogous to the Asian tigers. Let's call them for my sake, the leopards. I can tell you what their characteristics will be and then I can try to give you a couple of names but it's entirely possible that by the time this program airs, we'll find out that one or another of them is in deep trouble because of the, you know, the changing global economy, the rapid changes that we're seeing today in terms of China's demand, uh, falling commodity prices and so forth. The characteristic of an African leopard is going to be actually I think quite different from the traditional Asian tiger, stereotypical Asian tiger. The stereotypical Asian tiger, at least in its early stages of, of development and rapid growth, think China, think Vietnam, think Korea back if you recall that far and long ago, all began essentially with a manufacturing transformation. 
that was the very first thing that happened. People came off the farm, they moved into factories, they produced goods for export. And over time, the sophistication of those products grew. They transitioned out of the very low end of manufacturing and it moved somewhere else. Um, so as a share of the economy, manufacturing was very, very large, relatively speaking. I think the prototypical African leopard is going to be a much more mixed sort of economy. And the reason why I say this is for two sets of, if you like, natural reasons. The first one is that resource endowments, and I'm talking here about, if you like, hard resource endowments, oil, gas, minerals, are very important in the Africa story, remain very important in the Africa story, and you have to come to grips with the fact that the continent's actually largely unexplored. So we're likely to see very substantial new natural resource discoveries in the next several years in countries that we didn't think were naturally resource-rich. Uh, just within the last five years, countries that were traditionally considered to be coastal economies that were resource-poor, like Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique, now have very large hydrocarbon deposits. Uganda is another story. It's an inland economy with the same thing. Ghana. These were countries we never thought of as having those kinds of natural. They have to adapt to the natural resources, but it opens up a whole set of possibilities for them that didn't exist and don't exist in countries such as Korea and, and Vietnam. So that the natural resources sector is going to be a bigger share of the economy. Africa is very happily blessed with a southern hemisphere exposure and therefore with the possibility to do a whole variety of out-of-season agro-industrial activities. Um, Ethiopia is famous for its cut flowers. Kenya is famous for its cut flowers. Senegalese are exporting green beans to France, which has pretty high-quality standards for its haricot vert. Um, these are, again, activities which are very similar to industry but are not industry. And so if you say, well, it's a land-abundant economy, which also has good climatic conditions and has shown some capability for organization of production along these lines, again, it should be no surprise to us if a substantial share of output is actually in the, quote, agricultural sector, even though it's in these activities that are really more like manufacturing than they are like agriculture. And uh, when I used to teach, I always used to astonish my students by reminding them that California is actually the largest single agricultural economy in the United States um, because everybody thinks it's Silicon Valley and Hollywood. So, you know, again, even in very rich, highly advanced economies, high productivity agriculture can be part of the story. It will be part of the story in Africa. And finally, particularly in coastal economies, we will see um, a degree of manufacturing perhaps not as pervasive as we've seen in, um, in East Asia, but contributing once more to the sort of overall number of high-productivity, well-paying jobs. Last stop, services. We talked a little bit about leopards and lions. Leopards and lions are a natural resource-based source of comparative advantage. Um, so an economy like Tanzania, for example, it's entirely possible to see as a country that has 
a gas sector, an agricultural sector which focuses on markets in Europe with high value added products, clearly a tourism sector, it has the Serengeti, and a somewhat smaller but nevertheless dynamic manufacturing sector, perhaps somewhat surprisingly exporting to the rest of Africa rather than exporting to Asia or the rest of the world. What economies today do I see that might have this combination of leadership, natural assets, and some capacity for change? If we go down the West African coast, I think certainly Ghana, Senegal. Nigeria is always a big question mark, but if it can ever get its internal politics together, it certainly has the scale and the capabilities to be a more dynamic economy than it's traditionally been. In Southern Africa, South Africa is a very interesting combination of all kinds of problems and all kinds of possibilities, but it is the largest economy of the, the region and certainly has the potential to, to do considerably better than it's done. And then if we move up the eastern coast, you have Mozambique, you have Tanzania, you have Ethiopia, you have Uganda, you have Rwanda, um, you have Kenya. So out of that group of 10, I would be very surprised not just surprised, but also crushed, if we didn't see, say, at least five economies emerge in the next 10 to 15 years, where people actually can point to their neighbor and say, you know, these guys are doing a lot better than we are, and we better start thinking about what it is we need to do. Well, thanks for sharing your insights and ideas with me today, John. It's been very interesting. Thank you. You can learn more about John Page and his research on Africa on our website via our Africa Growth Initiative at brookings.edu slash africagrowth, where you should look for the most recent Foresight Africa report. And stay tuned in coming months for the book Made in Africa. And now a new segment on Metropolitan Ideas and Issues featuring scholars from the Metropolitan Policy Program. Hi, this is Alan Barubi. I'm a senior fellow and the deputy director at Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Inequality. It's on the minds of a lot of pundits, policymakers, and researchers these days. Some of them believe the disparity between the rich and poor in America today poses a tremendous problem for our economy and society. Others argue that inequality is a natural outcome of a market economy. We should focus on fixing other problems like promoting economic mobility for the poor. But there's little disagreement that income inequality in the United States, by most widely accepted measures, is at its highest level in generations. For all the talk of inequality, however, it could be hard to make sense of how it affects Americans in their daily lives. That's partly because the ways in which we measure inequality can be difficult to interpret. Have you ever calculated a Gini coefficient by hand? Yeah, me either. But it's also because national statistics on inequality tend to obscure the local ways in which we experience the economy. After all, the United States is a huge country with lots of distinctive sub-economies that vary on all sorts of economic measures, including inequality. Take New Orleans, for example. If you've ever seen the beautiful homes and neighborhoods in areas like the Garden District and Uptown, and if you saw the physical devastation that Hurricane Katrina unleashed on areas like the Lower Ninth Ward 10 years ago, it may not surprise you to find that New Orleans is one of the most unequal cities in America. In a new report, my colleague Natalie Holmes and I ranked the 100 largest metropolitan areas in the United States and their major central cities by the disparity in income between their rich and poor households. 
the city of New Orleans had the second highest level of inequality, trailing only Boston. In 2014, its high-income households earned about $200,000, nearly 18 times as much as its low-income households, who made only a little more than $11,000 that year. Looking at an individual city like New Orleans, especially in comparison to other places around the country, offers important insights on the causes and the consequences of inequality, particularly for lower-income households. One issue our research points to is that inequality isn't just a city issue, but one that actually reflects what happens at the regional scale. To wit, among the 100 largest metropolitan areas in the United States, the New Orleans metro area, which includes the city and several surrounding counties, or parishes in Louisiana speak, has the fourth highest level of income inequality. So this indicates that the broader economy in southeastern Louisiana has a lot of low-wage and high-wage jobs and households, at the one end in sectors like hospitality, and at the other in sectors like oil and gas and higher education. So you might say, okay, there are a lot of low-income households in the city of New Orleans and its broader region, but poor households in, say, Birmingham, Alabama have about the same incomes. Is it really any more difficult to be poor in New Orleans than in Birmingham because of inequality? Our report suggests that, in one respect, it might be. Specifically, housing looks more expensive for the poor in New Orleans than it does in Birmingham. The rent on a low-cost housing unit in New Orleans represents 68% of income for a low-income household in that city. That compares to 53% in Birmingham, which is still quite a lot, but it's not as high as in higher inequality New Orleans. And in fact, if you look across all big cities, housing looks more expensive for the poor in high-inequality places, regardless of the particular incomes that poor households earn. It looks most expensive in Miami. That's another high-inequality city. And there, a low-cost unit represents nearly 70% of income for poorer households. Now, why exactly that's the case, we hope to examine in future research. But for now, the upshot is that inequality can matter in ways you might miss if you only follow the national trends. And it also means that local leaders, elected, business, and civic, need to help develop local responses to inequality's effects. Addressing affordable housing challenges seems like an important place to start. You can visit brookings.edu slash metro for research and analysis about metropolitan areas. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahi and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Deuce. <laughs>